It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses, and you're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. And as I've told you before, that's 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. And you can also listen on the iHeartRadio app, download the app, and listen anywhere you go. And just as a reminder, all of our conversations that we have here on Moment of Truth uh, do end up on our SoundCloud and on uh, podcast platforms. So if you miss it during a live presentation, you can also go there to check it out uh, and see it posted. It is a pleasure to welcome to the show today... I have with me Ashley Whedon, and she is a proud graduate of both University of Guelph and the University of Victoria. And uh, she is currently a PhD candidate in the School of Environmental Design and Rural Development at the University of Guelph. And she is also a research associate with the Ontario Office of the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. Uh, Policy Alternatives sounds interesting. Maybe we'll have to ask her about that. But Ashley's here on the show today to talk to about an article she authored in the conversation. It is entitled Canadian Election 2021 Why Rural Rural Canada Must Play a Central Role And as we know, this is a very short election. It's passing very quickly So we better get on with this conversation before the election's over, don't you think, Ashley? It is. uh, It's a a real short race to the finish line this time. (laughs) Yeah, it sure is. And I I like the way you started your article, uh, depending on who you ask. This election is either poorly timed or urgent, inconvenient or generation defining, um, all of which seems very true. Yeah, I think, you know, it, it really does seem um, to a lot of people that we've got uh, issues on this particular ballot, um, whether they're being said outright or not, that feel quite urgent and pressing, you know, in terms of how we're going to address Mm. uh, the looming climate disaster, how we're going to address growing inequality, what it'll look like to continue to navigate uh, the pandemic and Mm. head towards hopeful recovery and as we head out of the post-pandemic, although we're not there yet. And then to others, you know, it feels uh, maybe rightfully so. It's only been two years since our last election. Mm. Um, you know, minority governments often are quite productive in terms of what they get done right. um, because they have to work together. So, sure. you know, it really does depend on on your perspective on what we need to be doing. Um, but nevertheless, um, we're heading to the polls um, regardless of what we think, whether we should or not. <laughs> True enough. Now, you in your article uh, describe yourself as a ruralist. Obviously, you've, you've uh, pointed that out to us, and a futurist. And uh, that you know your your interest in the election is focused on whether rural people and places find themselves marginalized, pushed to the per- periphery, or tokenized. Is that the reason you felt it important to write this article? Yeah. So I, you know, I've had the the great uh, privilege and pleasure to work largely in local government for most of my career before I. Um, came back uh, to start a PhD journey, which I'm hopefully rounding the corner on. And uh, and all of my work is sort of been in service of, you know, do we see rural communities reflected in the policies that affect and shape rural, our lives? Mm. Um, and sort of the genesis of my PhD project was a real frustration that rural communities weren't reflected in innovation policy. So I led a number of sort of future-oriented pro- projects specifically for Gray County as well as for the Southwestern Integrated Fiber Technology 
uh, broadband project, which is still, I think, the largest publicly funded broadband project in Canada to date. Um, and specifically, communities like the one I was working for, you know, really had to fight to be heard or seen or reflected in public policy and agenda setting. And so, um, you know, this is a, a deep sort of frustration and love that that's carried me through much of my career. And then looking at this election, knowing that the issues that if we're going to take that generation defining bent to them that we're looking at are really keenly felt in rural areas, whether that's our relationship to the changing climate, whether that's the cracks we're starting to see in sort of underinvestment and mismanagement of infrastructure and our social safety nets. Um, and just in terms of the precariousness of access to healthcare, housing, transportation, all mm. of the things that we've come to realize are um, have been shaped by this pandemic and are really critical to the way we live our lives. They have different different ways of, of rolling out or affecting people in rural communities Um just the same way that we recognize that, you know, Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, Berlin, Amsterdam, these are all different cities that mm. will require different um, policies and approaches. Uh, we've been quite lazy, on the other hand, with rural areas. We tend to think that they're all the same. We tend to have a, a trick in policy that becomes rural, remote, and First Nations, as if that's all one word, not three very distinct types mm. of communities that also differ amongst themselves. Um, and so when it comes to this election, you know, starting to look at those platforms across the various parties and, and really being curious about seeing the places that I know and love reflected in those agendas is really, I think, a critical issue, not only for rural communities, but for all Canadians. Mm. And you talked about the, that SWIFT program is, is the one you were referring to earlier. And I've heard, uh, you know, considerable uh, uh, information about that. Now, you know, I'm just thinking about our conversation that we're having right now. As you said, you were on Saugeen First Nation and I'm wondering how long ago it w- would have been before uh, we would have been able to have had this conversation from where you're located. That's one thing, I think, this idea about broadband connectivity that seems to be something that, that could help all areas across the country. Absolutely, um, and I mean, I've I've written uh, I can, broadband is the is the issue. I just can't quit. Um, it's because <laughs> it's it's such a critical piece of infrastructure. And, and believe it or not, you know, I was had the great fortune to to get in on Swift and and it was supporting that from when it was first starting to be um, developed by the Western Ontario Wardens Caucus. I, I had the the great joy of getting to see that come to fruition and we Mm. really started working on that in 2010 Mm. um and so you know that's a long process to getting to shovels in the ground and i'm no longer with the project right um but very proud of the stuff that they've been able to accomplish but when we look at broadband in general one there's a tendency to reduce the rural issue to just a single kind of thing in this in this election cycle it seems to be broadband um and two you know, we've had broadband policy statements to, since the late 1980s and not really managed to meaningfully move that needle. And I think it's important you mentioned, yeah, being on Saugeen First Nation, a lot of First Nations across um, this country have actually led the way in terms of community broadband networks and, and building out critical infrastructure and recognizing its value and importance to education, to accessing healthcare services, to accessing, you know, just opportunities to socialize, all of those things. Um, and the rest of Canada is very much lagging behind. But when we start looking at those platforms, and this is where, you know, this point I like to use digital policy as sort of the 
the the foil that tells us so much about how we design public policy for better or worse is that you know we have the the liberals saying that they're going to connect everyone in Canada to services of 5010 in terms of 50 megabit download 10 upload by right. 2030 the uh, the conservatives and the NDP saying they'll do it by 2025 um however you know, putting aside for a second that those are horrifically unambitious targets that will feel as out of date by those milestones as dial-up does now, mm. um, we don't see any real plans about, you know, why has this not been accomplished yet? Mm. And what are people meaningfully going to do to actually wrestle with the regulation and governance of how we deliver broadband services in this country? So when we start looking at those kinds of issues, we can see that, you know, we're, we're kind of dancing around the edges of a lot of these really important files without any meaningful engagement with the true core of the issue, which is how is it governed? Who's responsible for it? How do we take care of jurisdictional issues in an appropriate way? And arguably, a lot of the things that people are campaigning on in their platforms are actually provincial jurisdiction um, when it comes to health or when it comes to protection of, of attainable and affordable housing, all these things. So we're already seeing the confusion there. Um, so even though I'm in, you know, I'm in like grade 38, I like to read. I know that that's maybe unusual for um, the general <laughs> public, but it's really part of our job as voters to dig into those platforms and say, okay, you know, this is all nice and the language is really good, but what does it actually mean for where I find myself today? Does the place that I call home, is it reflected in these platforms? What would it look like to achieve these things here? Um, and to ask really kind of pointed questions of our would-be representatives about what they mean by a lot of their, you know, kind of platform platitudes. Mm. I think looking at COVID and what it has done because of it moving us into isolation and I hear more and more about how uh, people are changing their workspaces. You know, that first of all, it was their home. Now I'm hearing things about work workations I think they're called where people are now they're staying in their cottages right and they're working from there setting up and they're actually enjoying that so do you think that that you know there's been so many things that that have come to light in the last couple of years um, and have focused our attention differently do you think that this this change that we're focused in and how it is making us look at rural and urban settings because you know you yourself in your article you point out about how people like yourself you know you go from one one place to another there's a lot of people that live in the city but they have their cottages they have their places outside in the rural areas do you think that people are going to finally start seeing these as one and, and not so separate yeah, so I'm I'm a big proponent of even though you know I'm a ruralist, I'm a rural researcher. Mm. Um, I'm my work is is fundamentally oriented around place, and so the best part about when we start thinking about place based approaches is that it lets us get away from this sort of unproductive and increasingly dangerous um, rural urban division framing mm. because it really is about interdependencies and interlinkages right. less mm -hmm. so than it's you know, you versus me. And we've right. seen just how unproductive you versus me becomes instead of us versus the problem. And we've also, however, just as you said, I think even briefly uh, saw increasing recognition for how important rural areas are mm. um, to the Canadian economy and a Canadian social fabric in terms of 
food security, food production, uh, how we're going to, you know, manage energy production in a sustainable way. What does it mean to look at rural places as carbon sinks? However, rural places are valuable in and of themselves, regardless of what they provide to cities or to urban Mm. people. And so we need to kind of switch that framing. Now, when we start talking about these trends in terms of is the pandemic going to redraw the map of where where we live? And mm. arguably, I think that, you know, there's been a few folks that work in economic development in rural communities that have been pretty excited about the potential of people relocating there. And I always hate to be the wet blanket that burst their bubble. Um, however, most folks that are doing that are not moving to very far remote places. They're still looking at um, communities that are within, you know, that 90 minute sure. radius of wherever they're from. Yep. We also have to look at who's doing that movement. It's primarily white collar, upper middle yep. class people of means, yep. which creates this ripple effect of displacement. So as housing becomes crazy inaffordable in Toronto or Vancouver, it's having spillover effects. So in Great Bruce, for example, housing prices are 46% higher in this time period than they were in the same time period last year. Um, that's a phenomenal jump to the average housing price being now, I think, $700,000 in this region. Um, who is that affordable for? Sure. Uh, who is being displaced from these communities that, you know, attracting knowledge workers is a bit of a double-edged sword in that um, it's wonderful to have more interest in your community. However, if the centers of economic and political power still re- remain, you know, Bay Street, Queens Park, you know, Ottawa, Toronto then nothing really changes in terms of where power lies in our communities and in our systems. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. I'm your host, David Moses. This is Moment of Truth. And my guest here on the show is Ashley Whedon. She's a PhD cabinet, ca- pardon me, PhD candidate at the School of Environmental Design and Rural Development at the University of Guelph. We're speaking with her about an article she authored in the conversational conversation entitled Canadian Election 2021 Why Rural Canada Must Play a Central Role. And Ashley, are you are you seeing that rural people are getting engaged with this election so far? What what, are, what is your what are you seeing at your end? Well, it's interesting. I think that, you know, like any election, the people that are engaged are very engaged mm. and then there's a lot of people who um, you know, for a wide variety of reasons finding this difficult to wrap their heads around during a pandemic, during forest fire season, Mm. um, during all these kind of heavy and hard times that are happening in our, in this country. Um, But I am seeing, you know, from, from the circles that I'm connected to a growing kind of um, frustration that uh, we've heard about, you know, a a rural lens for public policy. Mm -hmm. We've heard about sort of nominal kind of almost, you know, using rural as an, as a, as a code word for kind of nostalgia for a thing that never existed. And so, you know, there's a real concern about kind of rural issues, quote unquote, being almost weaponized uh, <laughs> to, to appeal to a certain kind of demographic. Mm. Um, and I think that, you know, when you start to really look down at it, the, the advocacy that we've seen um, around better support for healthcare resources, exactly as the conversation around attainable and affordable housing, all of these issues affect cities and rural places. And I think you're starting to see people galvanize around those issues, 
what I'd love to see more of is, okay, what does that look like to do that in an equitable and just way, recognizing that, you know, attainable and affordable housing solutions that are introduced it's a wicked problem same as with transportation or any of these there's no right answer there are just lots of answers that sometimes create other spillovers so how are we going to address these things not only in toronto or vancouver but also in wellesley or in um you know otterville or in pickle lake or all Mm. these kinds of places um and you know you're seeing this happen around specific kind of issues and and friends that work in healthcare saying, you know, well, nurses in the Bruce Peninsula can't afford to have a home Mm -hmm. in their community. That's a well-paying, largely, you know, relatively speaking, compared to your barista, Mm -hmm. um, you know, well-paying job. If they can't afford to live there, what's the incentive for them to work in a rural hospital? And then what happens to that rural hospital? Mm -hmm. So the real thing that I'm curious about seeing forward and I'd love to see more people um, maybe talking about is, is these creative solutions that don't rely on per capita or quote unquote, like, you know, bums and seats right. funding solutions. We've seen the issue with rural schools, with transportation networks, like Greyhound closing with all this kind of stuff. How do we get away from idealizing public private partnerships, which we've seen not actually work all that well in rural settings. And how do we get towards solutions that don't just favor uh, this great term that I've heard, you know, around geographic narcissism, right, which is when we assume that the, the urban default is the right. only reality or structural urbanism, which then bakes that into the way we do policies, which is this per capita basis. And what does that look like to do on the scale of the project that is this country, right? We have such vast geography um, broadband, for example, laying fiber through mm. the Canadian Shield is different than having to label resistant cables on freeze-dried muskeg is different than having to string cables to make them almost hurricane-resistant in, in the Atlantic provinces. Mm. And so that will change the costs and the implementation process, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to achieve the same standard. And this is where colleagues of mine like Karen Foster from Dalhousie who's advancing this framework around the right to be rural, um, which I love because if we start interpreting these things through a rights-based lens, it galvanizes people a little bit more to think about, yeah, why would I accept lesser rights because of where I live? You know, if, if accessing the internet is critical to accessing other fundamental rights, then why should it be less so than in an urban environment? Same with access to education or health or housing. Um, that gives us a new way of interpreting them. So I am seeing, you know, um, people wanting to engage, but also just we're all fried, right? This is such yeah. a, it has been such a, a challenging, traumatic, difficult, um, uh, almost two years now, I guess we're at the 18 month mark, um, encouraging people, you can't, you almost can't blame folks for feeling, you know, a little bit like, okay, how do we just get through this election rather than really engaging with the issues? And, and I, 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 you can't blame people for that. I, I completely understand the difficulties around kind of adding this to your plate, but it is really important that we do take some time to consider those implications. Yeah. I wonder if that will be the catchphrase at the end of this election. We just got through it. <laughs> <laughs> it does feel a little bit bleak to say that. Um, but, you know, unfortunately, it is a thing that we're, we're in it, as I said at the top, whether, whether we decided to be or not. 
Um, and, you know, the ultimate interesting thing will be to see where the chips fall at the end of the process. Mm-hmm. I do think that, you know, uh, it can be both things at once, right? So when you, when you start with that frame around, it's either inconvenient or absolutely mm-hmm. important. Um, it can be both. Like, it's a lot. Sure. It, of course. Things are, are complex. <laughs> it can be both of those things. Yes. Um, and I think that it might be. Like, I think that I think the more accurate reflection is a yes and rather than an either mm-hmm. or. <laughs> yeah. Now, now, going back to something you pointed out in the article, and, and it brings in the, the rural a- angle, and that is that you said some people were saying if there hadn't have been all these uh, these forest fires, these, these, these fires burning out of control, um, there may not have been an election. How do you see that tying in with this? Well, I think that there was a, um, it was an interesting comment made on Twitter um, by someone that said, you know, if the fires that have been affecting largely rural and remote portions of British Columbia right. had been um, affecting a major urban um, center like Vancouver or, you know, even more so centrally in Canada. Mm. You know, like, we're in Ontario. It's hard. Uh, I think yeah, I lived in BC for a few years. I get that everyone thinks we're, we're focused on ourselves, um, but it is hard to believe that, you know, that had there been forest fires really threatening, threatening the perimeter of the GTA, would an election have been called at all? Um, and I think, you know, you can apply that to a lot of issues of severe drought facing mm-hmm. farmers in northern Ontario and through yep. the prairies, yep. um, a lot of the issues going into that. And so there is a little bit of that feeling that, you know, like, do you, do people that as our decision making processes have become so increasingly centralized, there's a little bit of that disconnect, right, between rural realities and where our halls of decision making are. Um, and you kind of, you can't, it's easy to understand, I guess, why people would say, you know, like anybody that was facing the same issues that, you know, having watched their entire community just burn to the ground as mm-hmm. they did in Lytton or facing the threat of a similar situation elsewhere in BC, <coughs> um, that, you know, if that was happening in Ottawa, that there wouldn't have been an election called and also, you know, kind of do people really understand what that's like to live through and then add this on top of it? Mm. So I think, <coughs> pardon me, I think yeah. when we start thinking about all of those things, it really does point to this, the importance of being really curious about someone else's experiences and what life is like for people in different places in this country. And you know, that goes beyond just campaign stops and goes towards really actually talking to people and making sure that people are engaged and informed about the decisions that will affect their lives. And I think as we have not only centralized the way in which, you know, government happens, but also the way in which public administration happens in terms of where offices are located. We've moved away from a lot of regional kind of approaches to things. There's been a a downloading of responsibilities, but not necessarily of capacity. And the further and further away that that kind of, not only the decision-making, but also the kind of the machinery of government gets from its community applications, the more disconnected it becomes from actually being impactful. And so to some extent, I'd love to see us go back to like what we had at the provincial level here in Ontario for a long time was you had a very committed rural extension program where um, people were out in the community and that fed back directly into policy formation in terms of a conversation between rural communities and the provincial government. At the federal level, you know, we had the rural secretariat, although it... Mm -hmm. 
Hello. It was disbanded in 2013. Oh, yep. did I get kicked off? There we go. I'm back. Um, <laughs> and uh, and the secretary, you know, was disbanded in 2013, and nothing's really replaced it. Mm. Um, so when we start thinking about what does a rural lens or rural proofing look like this? Maybe if we had paused and thought about the massive issues facing large swaths of this country, um, the election might have been timed a bit differently in in respect of that. Um, and I think that's a fair criticism by a lot of folks whose whose lives are threatened by you know by fire, by drought, by any number of major crises that's happening right now. Right. Yeah, all good points. Uh, just as we start to wrap up, uh, I want to bring it back to something you did talk about. You talked about climate action and the climate crisis we're in, um, income gaps you talked about. You you also talked about uh, reconciliation and nation-to-nation relationships. Are you seeing that at all uh, in, in any of your conversations as being an important uh, election issue? I think that unfortunately it has not been made an important election issue and it needs to be. Mm. Um, We absolutely uh, must push this forward in terms of what we're expecting from, from the leaders that are are hoping to occupy a seat in, in the, uh, in parliament, um, what they're going to do uh, to actually advance these goals. You know, we're, we're creeping out uh, for what more than five years from the Truth and Reconciliation mm-hmm. um, Reports Commission. We have the report from the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls uh, recommendations. Um, we have a clear path in terms of what to do and how to do it. Um, but I'm not seeing or hearing any real promotion or concerted talk um, by any of the political parties about what exactly they're going to do to make sure this work happens. And I think that, you know, a large portion of First Nations reserves are located in rural and remote remote portions of what Mm -hmm. we now call Canada. Um, There is a a very strong requirement and and sort of keenly felt relationship there um, in terms of of even how do we think of rural, how did rural as a concept get created in a a colonial mindset? Mm. Um, and so when it comes to moving forward, just like anything, what I want to see is, you know, a firm commitment to saying, look, it's we don't have to come up with new plans. The plans have been written and, and we've been told exactly what we need to do. Let's just do it. And I, I always go back to a quote by Bill Reimer, who's a professor emeritus at Concordia University and a, a sort of a giant in the field of Canadian rural studies. And he does say that, you know, like, we know what works like we know what we should do we just have to commit to doing it and so whether that is climate whether that's infrastructure whether that's how we house people or deal with inequality and the true work of truth and reconciliation that we really have to engage in in terms of what does that look like in terms of of canada's landscape and how land is allocated and and who's in control of stolen land you know Mm. Uh, is is critical to whatever our future looks like. Um, so it's time that we we hammer home to people that want our votes that they need to get specific about not only what they're going to do but how they're going to get there. Um, because it's good to make a promise, but it's it's terrible to break it. And so far, that's a lot of what we've seen. Hmm. Right, Ashley. We'll have to leave not it there. To land on a, <laughs> not to end on a downer. <laughs> I do. I, yeah, exactly. I think that, 
you know, we can get to those implementation plans and, and do those things. And that's really what we should be asking of folks. And, and that's an exercise of agency. We all mm. have the power to do that. Well, I think you've given people a lot to think about uh, as we head into the uh, final run of this election, a very short uh, time period. But um, we'll have to leave it there. And I want to thank you so much for joining me on the show to talk about your article, Canadian Election 2021, Why Rural Canada Must Play a Central Role. It's been a pleasure speaking with you, Ashley, and I look forward to speaking with you again. It's been wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. You bet. Ashley Whedon is a PhD candidate uh, at the School of Environmental Design and Rural Development at the University of Guelph. And that is this portion of the show. Please don't go away. We will be right back with more right after this. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. And it is a pleasure to have with me here on the show the co-authors of an article in The Conversation, which is entitled Transitional Justice for Indigenous Peoples Should Be a Key Federal Election Issue. The co-authors are, in fact, Kirsten Fisher. She's an assistant professor in political science at the University of Saskatchewan and the author of three books, including Moral Accountability and International Criminal Law which was released in 2012, Transitional Justice for Child Soldiers in 2013, and the co-edited, co-authored Transitional Justice and the Arab Spring of 2014. She's also uh, the author of numerous articles on international criminal law and post-conflict transitional justice. Kathy Walker is a Newa, Isqua, and Soto, Nakoda, and Métis lineage person and is a member of the Okima Okanis Band, and she's a which is signatory to the Treaty 4 in southern Saskatchewan, where she grew up. Now, Kathy has spent most of her professional life working with Indigenous nations and organizations in Saskatchewan and Alberta. She's engaged with and co-led research projects and been involved with numerous community programs and policy development initiatives. Her research continues to be informed by her community connections, including volunteer work with local and Indigenous organizations, such as the Indigenous Homelessness Advisory Board of Saskatchewan and the Harvest Community Incorporation. It is a provincial organization committed to providing marketplace environmentally sustainable products while also creating employment for people with disabilities. So it's a pleasure to have both uh, Kathy and uh, Kristen here on the show to talk about their articles that I mentioned off the top. Transitional justice for Indigenous peoples should be a key federal election issue. Welcome, Kathy and Kirsten. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having us today, David. It's our pleasure. You know, before we get into the article, Kathy, I have to say with your connection to your community and what it said there about, you know, always going, I guess, back to the community in terms of articles like this or in the kind of the work that you do that you put out there into the public for people to read, do you try to get community input or go back to an elder or some kind of advisor at all to to just, uh, you know, get the okay or, or just discuss it with them? Oh, wow. That's, um, that's a great question. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, on this particular article, um, I... I didn't explicitly um, speak with an elder about it, mm. but you know, I I do speak with with elders, and I I feel like I'm 
wherever I go, like I'm always in community Mm -hmm. um, just because, you know, I, where I live, um, there's, you know, a lot of, um, there's a strong like Cree and indigenous community, Mm. you know, um, here in, in the city in Saskatoon. And then I also have like, close connections again with my community, which is about three and a half hours south of here. Um, you know, and so I feel like I'm always in conversation with community and, you know, tuned into um, the issues that, that um, matter right. to, um, to citizens of our nations basically. Yes. And also just, you know, in my work, like teaching indigenous governance and politics. Mm. So, but, you know, that is a great question about, like, you know, how how should I, how much should I be more in direct conversation mm-hmm. with community on, you know, specific issues like transitional justice? So, all I can say is that I think that my um, connection with community informs my approach to transitional mm-hmm. justice mm-hmm. in that... Um, I come from it more from a, um, I guess what you would call a, um, a grassroots mm-hmm. point of view. Um, so in the literature, they call it, um, you know, transitional justice from below. Mm-hmm. But basically, you know, I'm really interested in what what is it that's happening on the ground mm-hmm. in terms of the uh, resurgence of um, indigenous relationships with, you know, um, the land, um, with, uh, practices of decolonization that that are happening at the grassroots level. Like there's, for instance, you know, just in Saskatchewan, there's a lot of really great, um, uh, land-based, I would call land-based transitional justice initiatives happening Mm. when it comes to like land-based education. A lot of the, um, First Nations and Saskatchewan, well, I shouldn't say a lot, but there's some really promising um, initiatives happening uh, around um, land-based education initiatives. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of great things happening with um, uh, language, Indigenous language revitalization. Um, I mentioned, I actually mentioned one of those as well in my profile, you know, the Nehiao, um uh, language experience, which has been dedicated to revitalizing the Nehiao language for, you know, over a decade now, and is really, you know, moving, trying to move more towards institutionalizing and, you know, realizing the potential in the new Indigenous Languages Act mm-hmm. um, to really fortify, again, like the what I would say are transitions or you could call them retransitions that are happening on the ground when it comes to just, you know, trying to really arrive at a more decolonial and just uh, relationship. Mm. Um, yeah. With, you know, uh, the Canadian state and also just with um, settler peoples. Mm. Nicely said. And I'm, I'm glad you gave that long explanation. I think it leads well into this whole topic that we are looking at through the article that you guys co-authored around tre- transitional justice. Kirsten, why did you think that it was important to write this article on transitional justice and especially through, you know, the, the election? Mm-hmm. Yeah, good question. Um, well, I guess the idea of transitional justice in Canada has been... Um, uh, 
kind of on the forefront of my mind for a while. Um, and as you noted, I've done a lot of of writing and thinking about transitional justice in a variety of different contexts around the world, um, but haven't done much about uh, Canada in particular. Um, but to me, it seemed really lacking, I suppose, the, the fact that, that we weren't really talking about transitional justice or it was done uh, in a very um, kind of cursory way. We were adopting some transitional justice mechanisms, like we have seen the, the Truth and Reconciliation mm. Commission in Canada. But there was a bit of debate about whether or not transitional justice really applies to a context like, uh, like Canada, uh, where we're not transitioning out of you know, civil conflict or, um, or immediately, um, um, you know, authoritarian regimes or something like that, which is usually what transitional mm. justice um, is seen to apply to. Um, but I think, and in talking with Kathy, um, we decided that we really wanted to uh, kind of highlight that we understand transitional justice applying to this context because Canada really needs to see um, this massive transition, what we, we understand um, to be the relationships between Indigenous peoples uh, and, and the Canadian government um, needs to transition. We need to see this transition and we need to see um, the leaders that are vying for uh, political leadership of the country as understanding uh, mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. what we need to see in this context is this massive transition uh, in perspective. Mm -hmm. You know, as I was reading the article and and reading what you were just saying there about how it, it is sort of this uh, this idea that is contested in the Canadian state uh, because of the terminology of transitional justice and that it, it may apply to uh, other regions, other countries, other areas that have gone more through a political upheaval and, you know, from authoritarianism or something like that. But really, when I started to think about it, I thought, well, wait a minute, because how have, how have Indigenous people been treated by the mm -hmm. Canadian, uh, you know, structure and government? And it, it is the kind of thing that is needed to spark the, the uh, people into thinking and say, yeah, this is definitely what is needed, because so far it hasn't been working. Yeah, I, I agree with you absolutely. And I think many people do. I wouldn't say that, that Kathy and I are completely unique in understanding <laughs> right. the situation in this way, absolutely. <laughs> but, um, but I think we wanted to highlight that. And I think we wanted to remind people that mm. this is um, this is very much um, a kind of ongoing conflict, I suppose, in a different way um, than, say, you know, civil conflict in which there's an ongoing, um, you know, arms armed conflict mm. um but uh but the transitional justice absolutely applies uh and that we do need to see a massive transition in at least perspective in the way that the relationships are something to a much more just relation mm. between the different parties you know one of the things that i feel is really productive about the transitional justice approach is that you know like you said it really helps us consider like you know, not only the macro level issues, um, but also, you know, those everyday seemingly invisible violences that, you know, Indigenous people continue to experience. And like I said, it also allows us to look at not only like some of the, you know, like the state based 
you know, more of the state-based uh, transitional justice mechanisms, but also, you know, at grassroots and transnational mobilizations and strategies um, amongst Indigenous peoples that have been moving us towards transitional justice. Hmm. That's a really good point, Kathy. Oh, sorry. Yeah. And yeah, sorry. And, you know, like, I just want to say, too, you know, like, I don't think we should underestimate, you know, the um, the processes of truth telling that I think are really uh, that have really been crucial, like to to really coming to terms with, you know, the historical and ongoing um, violences. I don't think we could have come to, you know, where we are at right now without, you know, those types of um, truth-telling um, mechanisms. Hmm, right. I like the, that idea of what you were just saying about the truth-telling. And I want to come back to something else that I thought of while reading the article. And the title of, of your article is Transitional Justice for Indigenous Peoples Should Be a Key Federal Election Issue. I, I'm wondering about the idea of transitional justice is it for indigenous peoples or is this is this a two-way street that is is also just as important for the non-indigenous to come forward and look at this and speak up on this oh goodness uh so i'm going to jump in here and say absolutely but i don't think i hope that we didn't position it as something that was um just kind of one-sided mm. um no i mean i think Transitional justice and why I think it's important in terms of uh, this time of year and the election and all of that um, is that uh, transitional justice isn't a particular mechanism of justice. It isn't a particular way of, of pursuing justice or a particular approach of justice. Really, it's a way, um, I'd say it's a lens, a lens through which a particular social environment can be viewed. Mm. Uh, it's a way of looking at what's needed for a process of transition from one of conflict and, and violations to one of positive peace and reconciliation. And that necessarily means that all parties to this relationship need to be involved in moving forward. All parties need to recognize um, some of the challenges and problems and crises in the relationship uh, and what is needed to uh, to repair or to create new uh, to new links of, of just relations between those different parties. So absolutely, it's a multi-context, uh, multi-actor type of uh, project. Hmm. Right. Uh, thank you for that. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. This is Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. I am speaking with the co-authors of the article entitled, by the way, this is in the conversation. And if you would like to go and read it, you can go to theconversation.ca. Look for Transitional Justice for Indigenous Peoples. Uh, should be a key federal election issue, and you can read more about that there. Kirsten Fisher is an assistant professor in political studies at the University of Saskatchewan, the author of three books, and her co-author is Kathy Walker, and uh, she is uh, someone of Indigenous lineage, and she is a member of the Okimon Okanese Band and the signatory to Treaty 4 in southern Saskatchewan. And uh, so it's a pleasure to have them both on and talk about this idea of transitional justice for Indigenous peoples. 
which of course, as we, and both Kirsten has pointed that out as well with Kathy, in terms of they're not unique in this idea of, of wanting to have transitional justice brought forward. We have heard about different forms of transitional justice over the last number of years that have been applied in different parts of the provinces and, and in ways of perhaps around issues where there is healing circles, those kind of things. They're just one of the ideas that you guys have have um, brought forward, uh, Kristen, as you have pointed out, that it, it isn't just one way of approaching this. There's there's numerous ways of approaching this. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes transitional justice is understood um, as kind of a toolbox of mechanisms, um, but it's really not that. It's, it's much more. It's, as I said, it's more of a lens of understanding the whole context. In some ways, it's a very... Um, broad Mm -hmm. uh, understanding of justice in response to a particular context. Uh, This context being, of course, one of a past or ongoing conflict, uh, violations, fear, mistrust, usually a lack of mutual understanding and respect, Mm. uh, and and a movement away from that context, a transition from that context uh, to one in which there's positive peace and just relations. Mm. You know, there's some. There's a really interesting part of your relationship, the two of you, uh, don't go, getting together to co-author this uh, this article. And, and what I mean by that is, uh, Kirsten, your background and the kind of things that you have worked on uh, on the larger world scene. Um, you know, with articles on international criminal law and post-conflict and, and trans- transitional justice. And, and and Kathy, with your uh, side to working closely with the communities. Uh, so you guys bring these two really interesting perspectives uh, that you can that you forged into this article and I think that's really interesting. Can you guys talk a little bit more about those two sides of your lives? So um, uh, Kirsten, a little bit more perhaps about what you see uh, on the world side of this kind of transitional justice uh, and and how that is is different than here say in, in Canada. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So, yeah, as you mentioned, I'm particularly interested in kind of what transitional justice means and kind of understanding it as a concept in and of Mm. itself. Um, And then from there, I'm particularly interested in, or at least my focus has primarily been in um, criminal trials and other accountability mechanisms uh, as a means of promoting uh, the goals of transitional justice in certain contexts. And uh, my field research has primarily been in uh, northern Uganda, where the International Criminal Court has been uh, involved, but also uh, where there's been uh, great discussions about traditional kind of local mechanisms of justice to mm. try to help in social reconstruction and all the rest of that. Um, but it's really interesting to look at that kind of context and then the Canadian context as being very, very different. And yet there are very similar Mm. uh, questions being asked, Mm. but how do you reconcile neighbors um, who have very uh, different uh, histories, perhaps, Mm. uh, who are very, uh, in in ways, not fearful of of individuals, perhaps, Mm. uh, although that's definitely the case um, Mm. sometimes in Canada and Mm. definitely sometimes in northern Uganda, Um, but, but still kind of the relationships are, are very tense, um, mm. and there's definitely uh, a certain amount of, of fear and apprehension. Um, and and how do you reconcile that um, in in the political with the the governments involved and the the leaderships of, of different groups involved, uh, but also even just on an, an individual level. Mm-hmm. 
Right. And Kathy, when you, you hear uh, Kirsten talking there about her worldview and what she has worked on in Uganda and other places, uh, and then you look at your own life and your, your own experiences and your involvement at the community level, uh, you guys must have had some really interesting conversations. Yeah, that's actually what led us to um, to writing the, the article mm. together mm. because um, she really... Um, I guess brought brought home to me like the value of this lens mm. and its emphasis on transition mm. um, that I think sometimes it's um, you know there's not enough focus on the fact that you know we we do need a transition to happen we need to transition to a more just and peaceful relationship, you know? And I mean, there's different, um, you could, there's different lenses that, that look at um, relation, political relations between indigenous nations and, you know, the Canadian state and society. Um, But, you know, like for instance, you know, if you're looking at transformative um, reconciliation and, and what that means, you know, um, they're always calling for structural uh, change, right? Mm. Um, because colonization is is a structure. It's it's not an event that mm. happened in the past. Mm. It's embedded in you know like the structures of basically any system you look at in in Canada right now. Mm. So, but I think yeah, but I I think that you know the the lens of uh, of transitional justice really does it like like I said the crucial work of um, of really wanting of really that um, you know transitioning to a more just state not that there's going to be you know that there's any sort of definitive endpoint or anything like that but um, I just think it's an important emphasis to have and then also just the expansive um, inclusiveness of what transitional justice means you know I think there's um, like I said it's it's really inclusive of indigenous peoples pushes you know our push for uh, maintaining our rights to self-determination mm. and you know our ways of life or you know what is sometimes called cultural rights mm. you know that promote and protect and preserve um, our rights as individuals and communities to maintain who we are and in our practices. Mm. In chatting with Kirsten, I really feel like I became more aware of the value mm. of this approach um, and its applicability to, you know, the, yeah, like the research that I do and the work that I do that is more focused mm. on I, what I would call, you know, like indigenous resurgence. Right. Uh, Kirsten, I, I'm wondering, if from your experience and from the work that you've done, just wondering, are you being utilized because of your experience to help that understanding in the areas that need it? And what I'm particularly pointing at there is in areas of justice, in areas of political, uh, the political world where you're, you know, where people may be uh, contesting this this idea or not fully understanding what is needed and what it needs to needs to do in order to happen um yeah well i think we're really just um kind of dipping our toes in at this Mm. point um as you pointed out um we come from uh, fairly different 
um, kind of intellectual well, and, and I guess life uh, backgrounds as mm. well. Um, and uh, and so we just came together on this uh, project. It's actually uh, in some ways the the initial step of a much larger project that we're hoping to pursue mm-hmm. uh, in terms of transitional justice and understanding different, uh, more creative options to pursuing uh, kind of the goals of transitional justice in Canada and what that might look like. Um, and we're hoping that so the two of us, uh, plus some others that, uh, that we're hoping to recruit over some time mm-hmm. would be involved in this project. Uh, so the the piece that we wrote for the conversation was was Kathy and my attempt at uh, kind of putting to words some of the the thoughts and the conversations mm. that we'd been having up until that point, uh, and so you know getting the opportunity to talk to you and to others and, and kind of get our thoughts out there right. to to the more public yeah. uh, is better. But but yeah, we're we're hoping to to move this to be much more kind of practical and and, uh, and uh, utilized in, in mm. bigger ways okay. as the project progresses. Right. So with that, as we're starting to just come to the end of our time, I'm just wondering if you can each answer this question. And uh, Kristen, we'll start with you again. And that is this. Um, how would you say then Canada, from your perspective, is where Canada is sitting on this idea of transitional justice at this point in time. The concept itself, um, if that's what you're asking, I'm not sure that we even need to necessarily, um, you know, to have individuals understand the concept Mm. of transitional justice. Mm -hmm. Um, What I think we need, um, uh, hopefully, is to to see that uh, those people that have uh, have sway, that have power, that have the ability to push certain projects forward, um, even if they don't understand the term transitional justice, mm. um, are looking at the the context through the lens of transitional justice. Mm. Are they really looking at this in a kind of very broad and holistic way about just relations and positive peace, or are they looking at individual pieces? Are they looking at clean drinking water, for example, mm. or yeah. education or something like that? Mm. Um and, and I believe that what we need to see is this much broader uh, lens of transitional justice and just relations uh, that will be much more kind of productive, but also much more holistic mm. uh, in our transition to kind of a, a different and better uh, relationships in Canada. Right. Okay. And, and Kathy, I'm just wondering, you know, the first time I heard the term transitional justice used, uh, for some reason it struck me as a term that might, might, be, might come from more of a indigenous and uh, traditional perspective. And what I mean by that is more holistic. That's what came to me, more of a holistic approach to issues. Um, how would you say that your community... And, and the people that you talk to around transitional justice interpret the term? Hmm. That's, uh, that's a great question. And I think, um, you know, just kind of echo what um, Kirsten said. I don't know that um, grassroots people really use the term transitional justice. Mm-hmm. I think that we talk more about, you know, restorative justice Mm -hmm. uh, you know which i think is a concept that most uh people are familiar with at this point Mm -hmm. um and transitional justice definitely includes um like restorative um justice um mechanisms Mm. 
Um, but again, it's also more inclusive of other types of, of mechanisms, you know, like uh, judicial or criminal mechanisms. Mm-hmm. I think that it's definitely something, like you said, that resonates with um you know, my own community and I'm sure with other communities and, and community-based organizations. Um, but whether, but I don't know that we really have the language of um, traditional justice. I think we also talk more about, you know, truth and reconciliation hmm. um, and, you know, the, and, tr- and basically yeah, mobilizing, um, you know, around those. Although of course, you know, um, the the word reconciliation also has a lot of um, that's really problematic for a lot of people. Mm. Okay, ladies, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the show and share your thoughts and ideas around your article that you co-authored in the conversation entitled Transitional Justice for Indigenous Peoples Should Be a Key Federal Election Issue. Thank you both and Chimiguech for joining us, as I say, on the show to talk about this. Okay, thanks, David. Okay, take care. They're the voices of Kirsten Fisher. She's an assistant professor and political studies at the University of Saskatchewan, along with Kathy Walker. She's also an assistant professor in the Department of Political Studies, also at the University of Saskatchewan in Saskatoon. I was in Saskatoon a long, long time ago. Great city. Loved it when I was there. I don't know how it's changed since then, though. All right, that's your show for today here on Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. Thank you for listening each and every day right here on Element FM and Moment of Truth. And we'll see you again tomorrow. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element, Element, Element FM.